Alex Moset, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech monopolies. First topic for today, we're going over to China, and we're going to look at a recent report that came out looking at the the Chinese venture capital uh, environment. We've talked about on the show for really the past nine plus months, a wholesale crackdown on Chinese big tech monopolies by the true monopoly in town, and that is the CCP. You know, we've talked about that you've seen uh, just a up and to the right trajectory in the US and Europe and South America when it comes to venture capital. Over the past few quarters, the US has been hitting all-time highs, Q2, uh, Q1 of this year, all-time highs in terms of VC activity, in terms of volume and aggregate dollars being invested into tech startups. Whereas in China, you've actually seen the reverse of that in, in the first couple quarters, um, particularly the first quarter of this year, you actually saw a decline in activity two quarters in a row back to back, right? So you've certainly seen some level of impact, but let's, uh, let's take a deeper dive here uh, into some of the takeaways. This report was put together by PitchBook. This is overall VC deal activity, which actually looks, you know, somewhat. Somewhat on par, you had 4,600 deals executed, right? So those are individual financings of tech companies in China in 2019. 2020, you had a little under 4,200. So you had, a, you had a dip there, but, you know, COVID. And then so far, you know, we're halfway through the year. This is looking at Q1 of Q2. They have about 2,400 events, transactions in China. So you're you're kind of back to what 2019 activity was, maybe a little bit ahead if that pace continues for the rest of 2021. You are seeing a more aggressive clip, a more aggressive rate, again, in Western markets like US and Europe. So um, not necessarily trending for a decline, but also not booming as much as um, you know the the Western countries or Western continents here. Let me jump to here this bit this is first financing vc deal activity what is first financing first financings are literally exactly that it's your first round of venture capital of institutional money that you're raising as a startup right so the first vc financing and why this stat's really important something we've been tracking on the show for years i look at it regularly um, I've more so spoken about it in the context of the U.S., where really ever since 2015 in the U.S., you have seen a year-over-year decline in first financings. I've attributed a lot of that to the rise of tech monopolies, to the maturity of development platforms, right? iOS and Android. Internet's been around for 20 years. Mobile development platforms have been around for over 10 years now. You know, you actually see a lot of um, startup innovation on the heels or on the backs of these mega development platforms, right? iOS and Android, uh, Windows and 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 the Mac. Um, so you haven't had a new dominant, well, an operating system development platform in a while, right? There's been a lot of hope put on AR and VR. Uh, now a lot of talk about the metaverse. We're going to talk about that uh, in a coming episode here. The car uh, as a as a development platform, 
uh, the home as a development platform, but you haven't really seen anything really take off like the internet or the mobile phone yet. So anyway, you've seen a decline in the United States. I've got some data here. This is from The Economist, 2015, uh, first financings, peaking at um, a little under 4,000 first financings a year in 2014, 2015, uh, and then by 2018, to a little under 2,000 first financings a year in the U.S. Here's another data point on that. Again, looking at the U.S. first financing activity. This is looking at aggregate dollars going into first financing, so not aggregate uh, deal count and and um, an amount of activity, but aggregate dollars. And this this chart actually doesn't look. It looks actually somewhat the same and consistent total dollars. If anything, actually might be going up a little bit. Uh, compared to 2015 versus, say, 2020. This data is more recent. Uh, so actually, total dollars going into first financings in the United States actually being somewhat the same, really hovering around this 3 to $5 billion per quarter amount. So third quarter of 2020, again, 2020, kind of a asterisk year for everyone, was a, was 2.1 billion in first financing dollars. That actually might be up if you compare that to 2015. Now again, that's the difference how much money is going around in the economy these days, et cetera, et cetera. But reason I bring this up is comparing the US first financing market to this recent report looking at China paints a very different picture, okay? So in 2015 first financing volume count in China was over 3,000. In 2019, you're at half that, 1,600. 2020, you're at 1,200. And it looks like you might be kind of leveling off there. 2021, we're, you know, we're, we're roughly half that uh, 2020 number. And you've been seeing a decline in both the United States and in China. I think you're seeing a much tougher environment in China than in the U.S., both just in total volumes, right? That the U.S. has been doing greater volumes from 2018 till now. Things have actually leveled off or, or not gone down as much, right? Whereas the trend has continued, if not somewhat accelerated in China over the past, say, two or three years. So 2015 to 2018 in China, you actually had a little bit of a slower decline than the U.S., whereas the U.S. seemingly has somewhat leveled off or, or declined less, and China's kind of kept on that trend. That's the interesting takeaway for me in all of this, is that you had, you've had mega fundraise numbers in both of these environments, the U.S. and China, mostly predicated upon these really late-stage VC deals. Um, so late-stage tech companies, right, about to go public, deferring or punting their IPO, raising big amounts of money from investors. So yeah, your overall VC dollars stat looks great. Lots of money. But when you really look at the health of the industry, that's why you got to look at these first financing numbers and not so much on the total dollars going in, into the industry. And I think what you will see is with muted possibilities, exit possibilities for the founders and for the investors, that all trickles down and makes it much harder to get your first financing. 
to say, hey, I'm a VC, I'm going to write a check to you. You know, is this industry now regulation proof or at least less risky to be regulated uh, or handicapped by the CCP? Hard to really know. Nothing's foolproof, clearly, in that environment. But you're absolutely, I think, have been seeing that and are going to see more of that. And that's going to come through in this first financing uh, stat that we that we track pretty closely here. Other takeaways from this, you know, you see a similar downward trend when you look at the angel and seed deal activity versus the first VC, right? This is angel and seed deals even can be one step sooner. Uh, early stage VC deal activity, they all have this downward sloping trend versus your late stage deal activity is more so up and to the right in China. So angel and seed deal activity 2015, about 1,200 deals in 2020, Share of VC deal count by stage. I mean, look at this, right? You would think that late stage VC would be more rare as compared to early stage deals, right? You know, you need more early stage deals than late stage deals. And it's completely flipped. It's completely lopsided. In 2020, you've got less than 10% of all VC deal count in China uh, being constituting angel and seed. And you've got, you know, about maybe 35 to 40% of late stage VC deal count on the other end of that spectrum. A big imbalance there in terms of the distribution of, of early to late stage deals. Then you look at the numbers on, on the value of the deals, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that challenge just gets even further exacerbated. Next topic is, is, is just another example about the symptom of some of these results um, or the catalyst for some of these results rather. And that is this Recent news, it's actually not new news. Um, it just uh, has, has really kind of caught the attention of, I guess, social media and, and, and certain media publications, is that China banning video games to three hours a week for young people, limits online video games to three hours a week for young people. The new regulation will ban minors from playing video games entirely between the days of Monday through Thursday. Another little note is this Wall Street Journal article is not written from China. It was written from Singapore because all of our American publicists have been kicked out of China. But anyway, so the new regulation unveiled by the National Press and Publication Administration will ban minors defined as those under 18 years of age from playing online video games entirely between Monday and Thursday. On the other three days of the week and on public holidays, they will be only permitted to play between 8 and 9 p.m. The government announcement said all online video games will be required to connect to an anti-addiction system operated by the NPPA. The regulation, which takes effect on Wednesday, so like two days later, will require all users to register using their real names and government-issued identification documents. So, what did this do to Tencent? Tencent, one of the, you know, BAT, one of the three big Chinese tech monopolies, with the majority of their properties and, and, and kind of platform ecosystems in the gaming spaces. They saw a dip. They were down, you know, a couple percent from this news. You know, they were around $61 a share. They went down to, what, $57.50, $58 a share. 
not too much of an impact, you would think. Now already they're back up at $61 a share. So anything actually right now, they're actually at 62. They're actually up. So here's the interesting thing. Yes, this article got a lot of traction and a lot of uh, airtime, but this rule or another variation of this rule had already been effect in effect in China, right? This NPPA group had already re- issued regulation for miners to restrict their ability to play video games during the week. That actually wasn't much of the new part. Actually, the new part of this whole thing was the mandating that you were now going to have to link if you're Tencent or any of these online video game game providers, you're going to have to link your systems into the NPPA's database. Yikes. Now, again, the the dragnet, the uh, authoritarian CCP draconian policies are just further embedding themselves into the tech monopolies and nothing new, just a continuation of modern 1984 in China playing itself out and abusing the power of platforms to uh, impose their, their will, the government's will. So this rule was already in effect in China for miners. Now the regulation of it and the potential ramifications if you don't abide by it, right? presumably a lot of kids were figuring out how to circumvent this rule, are going to be even greater, It's going to be baked into the social credit scoring system that China has. And I'm sure all these really bad things that will come to you and your family if you get caught playing online video games. Now, um, these are only for video games that are connected to the internet. So there are a lot of other video games that I'm sure these miners can still play or figure out a way to play on their parents' phone or whatever it is. So this isn't foolproof to restrict the playing of video games, but it is just another sign, right, of what is to come in China and other communist authoritarian regimes that wish to uh, use these tech platform monopolies as, as a means to control their citizens' behavior. And probably foreshadowing change that could come to non-minors, right? What is to stop the NPPA from saying, well, you know, if you're older, you really should be working more or going outside more Whatever it is that they feel like you should be doing differently that may not result in playing online video games, they have the power and now the mechanism and the built-in infrastructure to at the very least get the data on what people are playing and how much they're playing, let alone then decide if they want to take action on that or restrict it, etc. So Tencent had already put in a lot of controls around this and other uh, video game companies in China. And so... I think that's why you didn't see as much of a hit to the stock price of Tencent that you might expect reading this news if this really was completely new, but it wasn't completely new. Just a continuation in this never-ending saga uh, that, uh, that we keep seeing out of China and the CCP. And I can tell you this much, it's not going to work, right? I mean, if you're a kid, you want what you can't have. That's kind of like just human. You want what you can't have. So now you're just, it's like, you know, if, if you were deprived of candy growing up as a kid, and then whenever you went over to your friend's house and you just gorged on candy, um, <laughs> like these outright black and white bands, they, they don't really solve the problem. If anything, they can just uh, exacerbate the problem and make it even more coveted or more desired, more addictive rather. So 
Uh, we'll see. Back to the U.S. So interesting acquisition here. It's actually happened a few weeks ago. Uber acquiring a company called TransPlace. This is not the company that you might be thinking of called Transfix, which is a platform company in the logistics space. You can see here their delivery stats. They have a bunch of different types of trucks that they're doing. This is Transfix. So no, this is not the company that Uber bought. Instead, the company that they bought is a company called Transplace, which is really different than what you might expect. My initial reaction to this is that this is Uber kind of checking down on what they're trying to do with Uber Freight. Uber Freight initially was envisioned as the disruptor to all things trucking and freight, right? We're going to disintermediate what you would call the 3PL, third-party logistics kind of provider. So the shipper is what you call the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the manufacturer, the company that needs to ship goods. They're the shipper. They're the consumer. The producer is the truck driver. And in the old way, you had the 3PL in the middle coordinating uh, between, you know, one or multiple drivers and all the different say customs protocols and you know drop off points and all the different other details that get coordinated when you have you know multiple shipments that need to be coordinated and orchestrated across the country etc right so that complexity only increases as you try to cater to the needs of larger and larger shippers uber freight was then there to kind of cut out the middleman have a two-sided marketplace right uber for uh trucking We've talked about this on the show many times that that same business model doesn't work in the trucking industry. Why? Because uh, you have limited supply in the trucking industry. And the funny thing is, I actually interviewed the former CEO of Transplace years ago, uh, this guy named Tom Sanderson. I got to go find the recording somewhere. So I interviewed this guy and it was this guy who made the point earlier on than a lot of other people. And I've been making the point really ever since then is that when you have limited supply, as you do in the trucking industry, you have a trucking shortage, right? What, what Uber really took off was when they did UberX and everyone could become a driver. So they created this massive amount of fragmented supply that marketplaces need to thrive in a two-sided model. You don't have that fragmented supply in the trucking industry. If anything, you have the exact opposite of it. You've got millions of shortage of truckers. It's actually only become worse now with COVID and the labor shortages that are going on. So the fragmentation issue has gotten worse for marketplaces, not better. And now you see Uber Freight kind of buying Transplace. Really interesting, right? So my read on this is Uber wants to show profitability. They don't want to show that Uber Freight is continuing to lose money. This company, Transplace, was owned by private equity, owned by TPG. TPG bought it for like a billion dollars a few years ago, and they just sold it for over $2 billion to Uber. So TPG is happy. What Transplace is, is actually up a few notches in the supply chain. Uber has some pretty good charts here, uh, kind of breaking down what Transplace does. What is managed transportation? This is, uh, this is effectively... 
Transplace's business model, right? So there's shippers, okay? Then there's Transplace, the managed transportation provider. And then there's everyone else downstream. And you can see here, so, so if you're a shipper and you say, hey, you know what? Just manage all this stuff for me. You just outsource it all to Transplace. You can think of Transplace. Another example of Transplace would be like in the B2B distribution industry, integrated supply, where if, if you're a, you know, a large company and you just say, hey, you, integrated supply company, you manage all my procurement needs, right? So that integrated supplier, they're going to go buy all the MRO products, all the different supplies that you need for your business. They could buy it from Amazon. They could buy it from traditional distributors. They could buy it from manufacturers, right? That's up to the integrated supply manager business to figure out how to source, procure, and handle all of that business, procuring the goods and getting them to the different locations and sites and factories, et cetera. This is a similar kind of thing. It's a shipper saying, you know what? Just manage all this stuff for me, right? Hey, Transplace, you figure out how to do this, right? You could go use Uber Freight. You could go use traditional 3PLs. You could go use, as, as Uber has here, traditional digital or freight brokers, different than a 3PL. You figure it out, Transplace. I'm not going to deal with it. And then Transplace has their software and their services, which provide this end-to-end logistics solution for shippers. You're kind of looking at this and you're saying, what? Uber just bought this? Um, and so I think there's a couple reasons. So you go to Transplace's site, they say they have $11 billion under freight, freight under management, right? So that effectively means they have throughput. They have $11 billion of freight going through their system, which now Uber Freight is going to be able to plug in and, and, and tap into that $11 billion and Transplace and Uber Freight are now one and the same. So they're going to be able to divert more of that business to Uber Freight than the other alternatives that they were using you know, prior to this deal. So this chart lays it out pretty well. Transplace is bringing the shippers, the demand. Uber Freight is bringing the carriers, the supply. And they're trying to put the two things together. And you say to yourself, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you still have a two-sided marketplace. But, you know, not really. In this equation, you still have Uber Freight still going to run as a separate business. But now this extra demand is actually coming really from from Transplace, right? Uber Freight now controls $11 billion of freight management throughput. Then they can then channel that over to Uber Freight. Interesting, right? So... They're getting more demand, but really what they're getting from this is some nice profits that they can use to hide the losses from Uber Freight. So it's projected to have over $100 million in, um, in EBITDA transplace by the end of 2021. And they're, they're going to use this to just say, yeah, Uber Freight's losing money, but hey, look, the overall division is not losing money because we bought this nice profitable thing from TPG. For a bunch of money. So again, you do the math on this $100 million in, in uh, EBITDA, they paid over $2 billion. They're paying over, you know, basically like a 22, 23x EBITDA multiple. It's pretty rich. And they're not disclosing the revenues, but you can kind of work backwards into it. So to me, this is a check down. To me, this is Uber kind of conceding. 
yeah, you know, we're not really going to disrupt all things that are Uber freight and um, the entire freight industry. Instead, we're going to go buy this thing, which will provide an incremental. There's incremental synergies here. Absolutely. But is this the really kind of Travis Kalanick shooting for the moon, disrupting uh, the industry like like a Uber ride sharing and Uber Eats? No. Um, this is a check down. And it doesn't mean that's a bad decision, but it's a check down nonetheless. The opportunity still exists, however. And this is what I've been saying Uber Freight should be doing for years. Opportunity still exists. You go back to this chart. Where is the fragmented supply in this chart? It's not with the carriers. The carriers are the truckers, right? It's with the three PLs. The 3PLs, there's tens of thousands of 3PLs in the United States. Lots of small mom and pop 3PLs that don't have what? Good technology, good data, good, good connectivity to run their business, to plug into the trans places of the world and you know all the systems of these larger shippers, right? The 3PLs need digitization. The truckers have all the power. Right, the truckers don't need to do anything. You find a trucker that's willing to drive your cargo, you will do whatever that trucker wants. You'll you'll text that trucker, hell, you'll fax that trucker if that's how he or she likes to be communicated with. You will do whatever that trucker wants you to do. But the three PLs are very fragmented, and they see the big boys. They see the JB Hunt, the DB Shankers, the XPO. They see the big boys investing a lot in technology. And the 3PLs can't invest in the small 3PLs, and there's a lot of them, can't invest in technology anywhere near to the same degree that the large 3PLs can. So that's always been a big opportunity for me is how do you, if you're an Uber Freight, how do you enable and actually become more of a three-sided marketplace? It's definitely a different tack. It's, it's not the traditional two-sided marketplace play. Uh, but to me, you got to go where there's fragmentation on the supply side and there's absolutely fragmentation on the 3PL side. And no one has really filled that void successfully. I think that's still a valid opportunity. That to me would have been the big move, right? The disruptive move, the Travis Kalanick move um, would be to say, yeah, you know, Uber Freight's losing money. We got to do something about this. What are we going to do? Are we going to check down and go by TransPlace and hide our losses in TransPlace and like get some incremental synergies? safe move or are we gonna go give away all of our technology to our fiercest competitors called 3pls and like wall street's gonna have a cow and freak out at us yeah they chose the former you know each their own um just closing on the uber thing the thing i like about uber this is a small part of their business the thing i like about uber is they give you really good data about their volumes, about um, ride sharing versus eats. And uh, it tells a very interesting story. So they actually have more gross bookings today as of really December of last year. They had more gross bookings than they did in, you know, in February of last year, right? So within the same calendar year of 2020, because Uber is a platform conglomerate, not like Lyft, 
But because Uber is a platform conglomerate, it has both deliv food delivery and ride sharing. Collectively, their gross bookings were able to rebound within nine months to exceed where they were on a total volume basis pre-COVID, February of 2020. I mean, that's remarkable, right? Just the power of the platform model in these you know, black swan global pandemic type of situations. Um, and coupled with the diversity of being a platform conglomerate versus just having one strong platform business. Uber is a part of, you know, a few of these mid, mid size, mid cap platform businesses that I think are really on the up and up. Um, and that we, over the next few years, we're going to see their growth, you know, I've covered Etsy, um, and, and a few others. That I think their growth will exceed that of the large tech monopolies as a whole. You take, you know, this cohort versus that cohort, this cohort will exceed the, the large tech monopoly cohort. The other one I liked, oh yeah, this one. So this is exactly my point on platform conglomerates. This is talking about the cross-pollination between their ride-sharing app and then the and then Uber Eats app, basically, right? They're saying that the Uber Super app, which is everything, is a powerful consumer acquisition funnel for delivery. That's uh, food delivery. And you can see in the US, 22% of their first time food delivery orders originate in the rides app. Okay. And then actually in, in the inverse, you got 20% from food delivery to ride sharing, first time ride sharing, right? That's a trip. Now that number is 20% in the US, it's 42% in the United Kingdom, right? So Uber Eats is driving 42% of the new of the new first-time Uber ride-sharing customers in the UK are coming from Uber Eats. I mean, those are huge customer acquisition synergies, right? This is this is exactly what I'm talking about, the cross-pollination when you have these platform conglomerate synergies, right? You get this insane cross-pollination synergy uh, which is so powerful not only from a diversification standpoint you know when you if you have a global pandemic around the corner but also just from uh bringing down your cac your cost of customer acquisition it's phenomenal i love that they break that stuff out you know you don't have to break that out but they're also coming from a position of strength whereas lyft really doesn't share much of anything and they're not in a position of strength but i uh, love that they break that out other great news on this is Uber gross bookings at all-time highs. They expect to deliver profitability by Q4 of this year. I mean, good for them. Look at this. Look at all these losses. Everyone beating up on um, Uber can't become profitable. Oh, who is it? Kara Swisher calling out Dara. Um, where was I? It was the... Um, New York Times Dealbook Conference, November 2019. This might be the clip. Some of the times when you look at the, the, just the recent quarter, it looks relatively economically unsustainable to continue at this, even though if cash flows up, even if numbers are up. I'm going to give you a positive question here, because I think your business is economically unsustainable the way it is right now. What is your AWS? What is your what is what is the business is going to take you because you you don't have the time you don't have the patience and you are pulled into this idea of what's happened with WeWork which I think was the firewall that just fell what is the business that will bring you away from this 
a similar fate. Our rideshare business is our AWS. The core so one. The core one. We had 22% margins this quarter. Right? He says, hey, what's our key thing? Ride sharing. Oh, and by the way, look at Uber Eats, right? I mean, listen to, the, listen to it yourself, but he, he handles this so phenomenally and he was so spot on. And look at what he does two years later, despite a pandemic, do exactly what you said was basically impossible. Uh, markets, the EBITDA margins went from 17% to 62%. All right. In our rideshare business in the past two quarters, 80% of my revenue growth ran through into EBITDA. So when I look at the next two years, my growth is going to be probably, I'll do 8 billion in revenue growth. Hold on, 8 billion in revenue growth. And I need 3 billion to drop to the bottom line. It's about, you know, call it a 38% flow through. And I just demonstrated an 80% flow through in two quarters. So this is without so like, you raising. actually do have to do the math and the math works. So you can listen to the whole thing if you want. Uh, that was New York Times Dealbook Conference, November 2019. Hey, first comment on this YouTube video is I'd really like to see Kara run a business herself instead of spending her time insulting everyone who's attempted to balance customer expectations and a set of employees at the same time. If business leaders listened to everything she said, there wouldn't be a startup economy for her to complain about. Wow. Aaron White. There we go. You want to come on the show, buddy? Okay. Last topic. YouTube paying out over $30 billion in the past three years to creators. Big number. Um, big number. And we've talked about how Netflix versus YouTube. I'm taking YouTube all day long. We've talked about how Netflix is not a platform. We've talked about how I'm, you know, long-term bearish on Netflix or certainly if you rewind the clock a year ago, you look at where Netflix's evaluation was um, or longer, right? Netflix was, Netflix was in um, Fang, right? No, you don't, tell, you don't hear anyone talking about Fang anymore. Why is that? Famga's in, right? Fang is out. Why is Fang out? Because Netflix is in Fang. All those other tech monopolies are true platform monopolies. Netflix is not. There's a great article published here just kind of breaking this down that YouTube paid over $30 billion over the past three years and then lines that up against the linear uh, video streaming platforms like Netflix and Disney. And so it says that in Q2 of 2021, YouTube generated $7 billion in revenue, advertising revenue, okay? So $7 billion for YouTube. Netflix, same quarter, did $7.3 billion in revenue, okay? Disney. 4.3 billion. Disney 4.3 billion. What? How? How? It's it's Q2 of 2021. Disney launched. Disney launched less than 2 years ago. Disney launched in the fall of 2019 Disney Plus. You're telling me in less than 2 years you have a competitor, now actually plural, multiple competitors. I'm just talking about Disney here, but you got Comcast uh, with, with Peacock, you got HBO Max, you got Apple, Amazon, the list goes on, a bunch of other digital streaming competitors to, to Netflix because it's a linear business. Doing over 50% of the revenue that you, Netflix, have had and enjoyed for so long, this huge commanding lead. Disney's doing over $4.4 billion in revenue. I mean, are you kidding? That's not defensible at all. And 
Um, to top that, YouTube spent less money than Netflix and presumably Disney, but we don't have the number. So YouTube said they spent $30 billion over the last three years. Now, this article says if you split it evenly, $10 billion per year. Eh, I don't know. Let's say it's actually 8, 10, 12, right? Uh, let's say 12 was the, the actual most recent number because that number should be growing. It shouldn't, shouldn't be the flat because YouTube is paying revenue as a percent of revenue, right? It does a, has a ad revenue share business model. It shares the revenue out to creators. That's where this $30 billion is coming from. Hey, YouTube saying, hey, we generated whatever it is. For example, $7 billion in revenue and we're going to pay out um, X percent of that to creators. They've disclosed some of the stats on this, but normally it could be like mm, 40 to 50 or maybe a little bit more, 50, 55, maybe 60%. If you're a really big time creator, they'll give you special um, ad revenue splits and that kind of stuff. But Netflix spent $8 billion in the first half of 2021. Uh, so that's a $16 billion annualized content spend number. So even if we're being conservative and saying that YouTube's at $12 billion, that means that Netflix is still spending um, at least a third or more in content spend, right? To get like 4% more revenue. Which business model would you like? Oh, and by the way, Netflix is not going to be able to spend less on content because now they got Disney and a myriad of other competitors nipping at their heels, not even at their heels. They're kind of like right behind them. Disney is sending they, they expect to spend 14 to 16 billion dollars annually by 2024. So, right, this spend is only getting bigger for Disney. Netflix is not going to be able to decrease. The reason why Netflix is not a platform is because they don't have supply side network effects is because it isn't just about capturing the demand. You've got to have differentiated supply. That's the challenge for Uber on Uber Freight. There's no fragmented supply. Just like there's no fragmented supply for what Netflix is doing. It's all premium, high-end video content. Netflix is licensing it or creating it themselves. Okay, It's not the same thing whereas YouTube has, for example, over 2 billion users, whereas Netflix has 209 million paying users, right? And Disney has 174 uh, paying users across all their different streaming properties. So it's a very different business model. High-end content on balance sheet, linear. You know, you're just a digital movie studio with digital distribution, whereas the platform model has a winner-take-all dynamic. There's only one or two dominant players. Really, it's just YouTube. And there are a couple other up-and-coming uh, content platform content uh, platforms that are gaining traction, but they have a network of supply, right? YouTube has millions and millions of creators. There's no way that you can just replicate YouTube um, and, and convince all these creators to just bring all their content over to the competing platform. It just doesn't work that way because you have a fragmented supplier base and obviously fragmented demand, but you need both have that true lock-in, that true uh, winner-take-all kind of network effect, double-sided network effect. So much more bullish on YouTube's model. Just a finishing point here. Rumble um, is now a half a billion dollar valuation company. Just received money from Peter Thiel, um, you know, uh, PayPal co-founder, uh, basically earliest investor in Facebook. Guy's a bajillionaire. 
he just invested in Rumble, which is one of the up and coming. I call them my five oxymorons. These are the, um, you know, uh, there's a handful of these top 1000 websites in the United States, content platforms, social media platforms uh, that have been relegated to be kind of fringe um, alternative free speech esque content social media platforms, which everyone has poo pooed and said, well, they don't have any traction. Well, uh, that's not true. Rumble's average monthly users have skyrocketed from 1.6 million in the third quarter of 2020. 1.6 million third quarter of 2020 uh, to 31.9 million as of the end of uh, March in 2021. Right. So two quarters later, from 1.6 million to basically 32 million average monthly users. Okay. That's why Peter Thiel put money in. That's why they're doing half. They're worth $500 million. You don't know how much money they put in, but this company is, um, you know, showing that the, there is a weakness for these tech platform monopolies <clears throat> and their overzealous content censorship is actually has created a diaspora of users away from big tech content and social media platforms and push them to these quote unquote fringe alternative sites, fringe now doing uh, you know, 16x the volume in two quarters and worth over $500 million. I guess if you consider that fringe, sure, go for it. But this is not a blip. This is a this is a true mechanism. And I had the uh, CEO and founder of Library and Odyssey, another content platform alternative. Uh, really love their tech, really love their platform on the show talking about it. And he said, you know, it's actually a blessing, right? They're overzealous, their censorship, their Orwellian tactics are pushing all these users away to Odyssey, to Rumble, uh, to other social networking, free speech, alternative platforms. And it's only picking up steam. It's not decreasing. So that's a bright spot in our battle to fight back and win against big tech monopolies. That's it for us and winner take all. Thank you very much for joining us. I will talk to you soon.